Flourishing Education, the podcast where I share the powerful, imperfectly perfect conversations with disruptors of the education system in the UK and beyond. I would really like to encourage you to take a listen and see what's possible as I ask the question, how can we change the way we educate and parent our children and young people so that they can truly become flourishing, curious, lifelong learners and young adults. I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I've enjoyed recording them and creating them. Please do not hesitate to connect with me on LinkedIn, Fabian Vales, and or, and or on Twitter at FlourishingHG. And please let me know what's your favourite episode or favourite part of the podcast. I look forward to hearing from you and in the meantime I truly hope you are thriving and flourishing. Wishing you a fabulous day wherever you are in the world. Hello and welcome to another powerful Imperfectly Perfect Conversation for the Flourishing Education podcast. Today I'm really excited to welcome Curtis Ogden to this Uh, conversation. So Curtis, could we start with, so first of all, very warm welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to have you as a guest. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Yes. And then uh, could you tell our listeners, tell us a bit more about you, so where you are in the world and, and, you know, what you do? Sure. Uh, well, today I'm actually coming to you from the state of New York and the United States uh, in upstate New York, uh, the town where my parents used to live. Um, I live uh, with my own family about a four hour drive from here in Western Massachusetts uh, in the town of Amherst. Um, and uh, for the past 18 years or so, I've been affiliated with an organization called the Interaction Institute for Social Change, which is based in Boston in Massachusetts. Uh, Though we do work uh, all around uh, the United States and um, also some work internationally. And um, as the name indicates, uh, we're, we're all about social interactions, getting people working together uh, to realize uh, positive social change, whether that be um, environmental or uh, social, social equity, um, education, healthcare. Uh, we're pretty much generalists when it comes to the, the fields that we work in. Wonderful. And obviously, I reached out to you because I've been, we've connected on LinkedIn and I've absolutely really enjoyed your, your posts. Mm. Um, because I guess, and I'll start with that, what I sense about your work is it resonates really deeply with, uh, with me as someone who calls herself a reformed teacher and a reformed mom, mother, in the sense that um, the listeners will know that because I've said that a lot lately. Um, I used to be the product of the Franco-British education system, working in the system, trying to change it from within. But until I started the podcast and having the conversations, I never really realized how little I actually challenged the paradigms on which it's based, on what it's based on. 
So this notion of very, you know, it's an engine and you tweak it and we cogsin it, it's very mechanistic. Uh, you know, it's all very Newtonian and Cartesian and very like dualistic, black and white. And um, and I sense that your posts are completely the opposite. And, you know, your work, it sees the world in a completely different way. So could you talk to that to start with? Sure. Well, I'll pick up with my own story about education. Um, I'm a son of two educators, one who taught at university uh, and the other who taught at different levels from elementary to um, doing adult education for adults in the United States who were going back to get their high school diploma if they had not completed education. My mother also taught English as a second language. Uh, my father was a French professor at the university level, uh, taught language and history. And um, I grew up loving education. I, I was surrounded by it. Uh, my, my, my grandfather who lived where I am now uh, in this community in Ithaca, New York was a college professor and had, had a library just full of books. I was just thinking about this last night, how as a kid I'd walk into that library and just you know, thumb my way through all the shelves and pull off um, poetry or literature, um, history social criticism it was just you know it was just it was it just felt um uh i don't know just very very alive very interesting um and so uh to be educated i, I took that uh very seriously so i did very well in in school got onto university <clears throat> at the University of Michigan and um, also had an experience of it almost like being a, a candy shop of, of just loving everything I was learning, new disciplines, um, learning more culturally, being around people from the rest of the country and the world. Um, and then ultimately after school went to uh, live in Zimbabwe to do um, ostensibly community development work. Well, I had studied quite a bit uh, about community development, economic development. My parents had both been in the Peace Corps in Liberia. So that was an experience that I held um, and then heard a lot about. And it was probably no sooner as I set foot into Zimbabwe. And I should say I'd spent one year actually as a child when I was 12 years old living in Gabon in Central Africa and sort of learning French and learning all about um, to Francophone culture and the Fang culture in Gabon. But this experience arriving in Zimbabwe was very different, not because it was Zimbabwe per se, but because I was at a different stage in my formation. And I quickly became aware of um, the shortcomings of my education, um, what it taught me, what it did not teach me, how it taught me, how it did not teach me, um, uh, certain aspects of history that were lacking, um, and then just the modalities. Um, I just shared actually a post about this on LinkedIn the other day that I um, was affiliated with um, this development education center called Silvera House which was very rooted in experiential education um, in Paulo Freire's thinking um, and um, in appropriate technology and permaculture. And 
I just realized that the, you know, this, the hands-on nature of things of being very, very applied um, was something that I had been missing for so many years in my education. Um, there was a civics education center, again, rooted in um, the ideas of Paulo Freire um, and others that um, was all about conscientization and really making people aware of um, not just history as written, but living history as it is in people and communities and really brought a critical, much more critical eye um, um, to things. Uh, so it was not very long before I was wondering why am I here in Zimbabwe as this tall white American? What am I, what am I doing? Am I here to now just perpetuate <laughs> colonialism? What do I have to offer? What do I know? Um, it really kind of problematized things for me. And then in um, being around uh, the teachers who worked on both this kind of Freirean um, conscientization process, as well as uh, the permaculture garden, um, I didn't have the words for it then, but it was really a systems education that I was getting now, um, having not really received that directly when I was an undergrad or when I was um, in high school. And that just brought the world alive in a whole another way um, of looking at things as systems and living systems in particular um, and thinking about how it is that we can do regenerative work now that was not the term anybody was using at the time um, but just the aliveness that I felt in that was um, something I had not experienced when I was um, in uh, high school or college where it was often a little bit more about just absorbing and regurgitating content. Um, I mean, certainly filling my head, but but not, uh, you know, but it, sent, it tended to be more just my head, not my, not the rest of my body. So I'll pause there. <laughs> yes, and that's so much of what you've said. I deeply, deeply resonate in terms of an experiential, uh, you know, what I also felt. Mm. Um, so as a as a linguist and somebody who likes to sort of clarify things, uh, I absolutely love uh, uh, Paulo Freire. But like, I wonder whether some of our listeners, particularly mums, maybe the educators may know, um, may not be really aware of his work, his fabulous work. Um, and, you know, in particular, sort of pedagogy of the oppressed. Uh, and so would you talk to that a little bit before we move to the to then the regenerative and the, you know, the moving from the just the head and feeding the head to, you know, feeding the, the whole body, I guess? Yes, sure, sure. So Paulo Freire, I was introduced to first at Silvera House uh, in, in Zimbabwe, then actually after coming back to the States, um, and moved here where I am now in Ithaca, New York and um, linked up with a group of uh, graduate students. I was not in graduate school at that point, but I was had connected with some of them socially who were about to do a trip down to the Highlander Center in Tennessee where Miles Horton uh, worked. And Miles Horton and Paulo Freire were very close in their sort of pedagogy and ideas. And so what I understood um, Paulo Freire and Miles Horton to be about is really popular education um, as sort of a respect for um, the, the lived experience of adults uh, who really tapped into that experience um, and 
use different kinds of methods, including storytelling, um, in, in, including um, in some cases theater, to bring alive their experiences and to make them more conscious of, of what they were going through. Um, in the Highlander Center, you know, this was often about uh, well, during the labor movement, working with workers to help them make a, make make themselves aware of of their own circumstances as workers and how much how much of that was not actually working for them in terms of um, the types of treatment they received and then how they could um, reclaim their humanity, um, also reclaim their own culture. So there was something about the education that I saw at Silvera House as well as at uh, Highlander Center that was very steeped in the culture of place, um, in the music, in the folklore, um, and really seeing that as being central to education and empowerment. And so, um, you know, popular education, popular here meaning of the people, uh, of the actual real people. Um, and again, having that experience of uh, at Silvera House or at Highlander Center, seeing people from places brought alive, sharing their experiences and using that as a foundation that was validated and then kind of like the soil out of which new awareness and knowledge grew was just very um, exciting. Yes. And so you talked about being in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe and being this tall white American man there, sort of like wondering what am I doing? Um, this summer, I my sister has moved with her husband to Mayotte, which is near Madagascar, so French island. Um, and something truly magical with being in this beautiful place happened for me, um, but also made me really uncomfortable watching many of the you know the people from the metropolitans they call them you know, over there, so who come from France, mainland France, who tend to have these positions of power and jobs. And, you know, the challenges of this island who is now, which is now French, um, in, a, in a place with like Comoros Island, where there are other islands that are much poorer and the challenges of the you know, illegal immigration and all of those things. Um, and as a white French person, it made me feel really uneasy um, because when you hear some of the conversations going on, um, there's almost a sense of, well, we've reached this level of, um, you know, sort of achievement, for example, in France. And it's like, we're going to pull the ladder because you can't all come because there's not enough. There's, there's almost underlying that is that notion. Um, and that made me really feel uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. Um, and again, this is not something that is openly discussed, right? We oft, we, we do talk about like, at the university where I work until very recently, we talk about decolonizing the curriculum and you know all of those things. But in our daily life, it almost feels like the because we are like being white and being coming from that position of privilege there's a slight sort of shame and guilt that sort of almost 
is unspoken about. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I wonder whether we could sort of explore that you know, before moving to the to then the regenerative uh, mm -hmm. shaping. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you, because I think that's an important, at least for me, that's an important conversation before jumping into anything about regeneration, because um, it does seem to me that in a lot of the regenerative um, discussions, there is, a, a lot of them seem to lack a kind of a, an awareness of, I think, social dynamics and things like colonialism and um, racism, as as in here in the United States. And um I don't know how you I don't know how you regenerate by ignoring those realities uh, in ourselves or in society. Um, you know, I grew up in Flint, Michigan, which uh, was uh, sort of the community I grew up in was a vestige. The school system I grew up in was still a vestige of the race riots that had happened in the 1960s. There are all kinds of things that we were not taught and we lacked a certain period in our school because they had shortened the day because of the violence during the 60s. I grew up going to school in the uh, late 70s and 80s and um, and in a very multi-racial, multi-ethnic school. It was a public school and um, was always aware of, of sort of tensions um, between people of different identities and then certainly directed at me as a, as a white person, even as I had friends of all races and ethnicities. Um, and in fact, in, in high school uh, was part of a, a group of students that were working on sort of issues of understanding across race and ethnicity. Um, and then it was quite a to say it's a rude awakening makes it makes it sound as if I had no idea. But 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 when I got to the University of Michigan, for example, I started to have experiences of just watching the sorting of people, of people of different identities, sort of finding their groups and 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 their homes where they felt most comfortable. Um, I remember comments during an orientation session that really threw me off. I was spending time with some friends who were. Um, Filipino and African-American and um, oh, some white student from a rural community in Michigan came up to me and said, hey, what's wrong with you? You don't, you don't like white people? Um, you know, these, these kinds of dynamics and things that certainly were, you know, it's not that they weren't present in Flint, but I didn't, ex I didn't experience them as much in my face. And then to go to Zimbabwe, um, you know, Having lived in Gabon, but having been 11, 12 years old, it was a bit, it was just a bit of a different experience. My father was a professor who was teaching in the university system. Um, it's not as if I didn't notice those dynamics of race, but I was, I, I don't know, I was younger. It felt like it was, uh, I've often said that that year felt like it was a French film about a childhood. You know, there's just like a lot of wonder about the whole thing, seeing something through a child's eyes. And, seeing Zimbabwe through my my um, adult eyes was, yeah, it was very just apparent that being a part of the development set, uh, I was following in the footsteps of, of colonists and in, 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 the, in, in very much in part of this kind of neo-colonial machine, while it was different and used different language, there was still a sort of separation. I remember all of the NGO workers lived in one particular neighborhood, um, to the north of the city. Um, my, the volunteers I worked with, and we were in a much smaller, much 
much less resourced program, let's put it that way. We lived um, uh, in a very different neighborhood that was uh, very mixed uh, in terms of, of race and identity. Um, but that was something I noticed um, quite a bit. Uh, I mean, I was, I was called a, a Murungu when I was there as a white person. So my own identity uh, being sort of put in front of me in, in interactions. And, you know, even as I had friends that were Zimbabwean, you know, again, I'm here on the heels not too long after uh, the change from Rhodesia to an independent Zimbabwe um, as part of, you know, this development set. Uh, an American uh, and just my very presence there uh, represented a, a, a relative degree of wealth to be able to afford a, an air ticket to get there. Um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't very long before I was I was really really questioning why I was there. I remember one call home to my father who understood these things. I, I and and he said, you know, you've got to make the choice that's right for you. You you know, if it feels right to come home, come home. And, um, you know, the saving grace was actually finding a place within a program um, where I felt like I could authentically give something that I had to give and that it was actually being received by my Zimbabwean colleagues uh, authentically. Um, and then I ran a, an orientation program for the next set of volunteers where I actually brought in some of those <laughs> Freirian um, techniques, just really help, helping people become aware of why they were there. Why were they coming into this program? What did they hope to achieve? I, I do remember that a couple of the volunteers during that orientation broke down at one point uh, and came to me and they said, well, are you telling us that we shouldn't be here? And I said, well, no, I'm not telling you you shouldn't be here. I'm just asking you to be aware of why you're here and um, you know, to make choices uh, accordingly and to keep reflecting on that. So, uh, yeah, and uh, so all of that, you know, legacy certainly lives on and, and it's not as if I came to the back to the US and escaped any of that. I mean, we are living the vestiges of all of what this country has done, uh, you know, uh, to establish itself on the backs of uh, indigenous peoples on the backs of enslaved labor. Um, the descendants of those slaves, the indigenous peoples who are still here, um, you know, uh, lots of uh, important conversations and movements uh, for, I won't call it reconciliation because that suggests that we were ever conciled, uh, but for um, rep rep reparation and recognition. Um, so uh, that that has to be central to education, and if it isn't, then again, we're not we're not really conscious, are we? No, and that, and I think that's such a a, a nice way, sort of like a segue. So I recently uh, watched a program that Gabor Mate, who sort of talks a lot about trauma, um, held with a lot of elders from different. Uh, I, I can't remember one in Alaska. I think one in. Scandinavia, I can't remember where exactly, where, you know, they were, were talking about that trauma that obviously all of those experiences would have caused for, um, for, for people, and then them saying, uh, well, you're now looking up to us and our wisdom, Aboriginal sort of, you know, wisdom to save the planet, and, and, and I just cried, literally watched this, and I was just really, really um, 
quite and I think your point about knowing why it is we're doing things so I was saying to you the conversation on the podcast seemed to want to take me to regenerative uh you know leadership and education as conversations but I I really want to explore things not so surface level um, and really go deep and acknowledge, you know, what are the intentions behind all of those things? Um, You know, am I doing this for myself? Am I doing this for the relationship between humans? Because we often talk about, you know, looking after the planet and but what about the, the relationship human to human? You know, it's right. it's so it's so easy from a position of privilege of middle class to be worried about global warming when there's some some people, and even in the UK, you know, I was reading this article, and I said to my husband, Oh my god, I just can't cope with this. This whole idea of there's I can't remember how many million of children in the UK who are uh, on the poverty line. And, not, and, and as a result, if you put it in perspective, nine out of 30 children in a classroom will not have had a had breakfast or food. You know, how can we live with that? Do you know what I mean? It's like that relationship human to human to then be able to go beyond to planet and the world, etc. So again, I would love you to, to, to talk to that and sort of like share with us. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I mean, what came up from me is, um, yeah, I, I feel like I've, uh, throughout my so-called professional life, been walking with one foot on this uh, rope, let's call it, uh, which is this rope of, you know, justice and fairness for people, you know, my, my deep concern for for, for, for friends, for people I know, for neighbors, for all the people that I've got to meet in my life of all different backgrounds. And why should anyone by virtue of our, our, our ethnicity or our so-called race or our education level or whatever economic status we were born into, why should we get more or less? You know, just, uh, just never having understood that since I was a really small one. And then also just I care for the for the more than human world, um, which is always you know something I felt very connected to. And so, how do these come come together? I mean, they do, and yet they, they often get you know divided. In Zimbabwe, it was very clear there were those of us who were working on human welfare and rights. That was me, and then there was a whole other set worked on you know, the national parks and saving the rhinos and, and, and um, ecological matters. And they, it felt like they were very different kinds of people actually at the time. And it was clear to me, at least in those instances, that the human rights people were my people, even as it seemed to leave aside this other thing that I cared so much about. And the older I've gotten, the more, um, you know, I felt the pull toward the more than human realm not to leave the human behind, but to say that there that's a, that's our kin too. And uh, but for their health and well-being, do we live right and are, are and have well-being? Um, and and so understanding that it's a complete picture. Um, and I was also thinking as you were talking, um, you know, bell hooks, the 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 educator and activist who passed not so long ago. 
um, I think she said this in a, in a conversation with Wendell Berry about race and um, uh, basically saying, you know, as we treat the land, so we treat people, right? We sort of have this idea that to live, we must subjugate someone or something. We must control someone or something. And that the system that we then create is bound up in this belief of scarcity. And so somebody clearly is not going to get, right? And so who's it going to be? And I'm saying that's the belief system, right? Those are the rules of the game. And, um, but we know that, uh, you know, those kinds of systems, while we treat one part of the body poorly, it, 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 it affects the entire body um, of humanity. And um, given the impact we have on the planet, then the planet as well. So there's actually a paper that um, my colleague Sally Gerner and I were um, uh, going to start working on, which looks at the SDGs and points out that they're the ones that are the most social around sort of fairness and equity are, are the keys. <laughs> they are the real keys and linchpins to this. It may seem counterintuitive that we can't have a, a sustainable planet if we're working on these ecological issues, and yet they're so bound up into the human realm, how we treat one another uh, and how we comport ourselves on the planet. Uh, we are a force to be reckoned with, um, uh, right? I mean, with um, uh, having wrecked uh, just untold damages uh, on the planet, but we can also do good. And, and, and we know that um, indigenous peoples, many indigenous peoples still, uh, still steward, uh, their places in ways that are, 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 are done with care and, and, and regeneratively. Um, so I, I feel like I just uh, uh, really wandered in that answer. So I don't know if I answered No, 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 you did. You, you, you really helped. And you used a word that I, I wonder whether you can, again, like the linguist in me, I like, I like things to be defined. And so you yeah. used the word kin. Yeah. Um, and I've seen that in your writing. So I wonder whether you could talk to that. Uh, because what I heard, what came up for me when you were talking, it's almost like replacing our role or like, I don't know if you're replacing is, is, the, is, the, is, is the word, but it just feels like we have put ourselves as, on such an important pedestal. And it's almost like I, I, I felt when I was in France, well, both in my yacht, but then with my parents, I love watching the, the sky at night. And for me, uh, watching the sky and its immensity and watching the meteor shower and then like the satellites, we, we all sat in silence with the two boys and my dad. And there's that awe that really puts you back in your place in a really humble, gentle way. Um, and so that's what I mean by that, like replacing. It's almost like maybe <laughs> we all need that gentle reminder that <laughs> we we insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Um, yes, yes. Well, there's the um, I've I've referenced Tyson Yunkaporta's work so many times uh, over the last couple of years since reading his book Sand Talk, and then more so even recently in conversations with people when he described 
sort of boiled down what uh, indigenous rites of passage are when you have a, a young person age 13 or so. You know, he said, basically there are three messages when you look across indigenous cultures um, and these rites of passage. And the first is, uh, the first message is, um, you're not that special, <laughs> which is, it's kind of breaks down ego a bit, which is to say, you, you aren't that special, right? I mean, um, uh, there are many other people and there are many other beings on this planet. Um, and, um, it, but then the second message is, while you aren't special, you, you are unique. You do bring something that is unique to this planet as we each do, right? Uh, a particular ability or a combination of talents or just, you know, just this, this whole marvelous thing that we bring together. And then the third thing is, and now you get to use that uniqueness in service of this larger thing, which, you know, he doesn't use these words, but I interpret it as sort of in service of your larger family, right? Not human and and non-human. Um, and and I think that that is is just so key. And and that that first step of breaking down is 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 really meant to instill that sense of awe, right? Right? That it's just so much larger than we can even possibly imagine. Um, how could we be that special? I mean, th this whole thing is special right? This whole thing is special. Now I have a unique role to play within that. And, and I think that that's, you know, something certainly with my own daughters that I'm trying to bring to their awareness. What is your unique gift in this just amazing play of existence that you can step into with humility, but also boldness, right? Because there's work that needs to be done, but sort of a humble boldness to do that things that is yours to do on behalf of this, right? Because um, we want everyone to enjoy, enjoy the play. <laughs> yes, yes. And I, that fits in so well with what I say about flourishing. So for me, it's like, it's about empowering or allowing our young people and children to discover who they are in this garden called life and what their fragrance is so that they can just really um, contribute to the garden like the do the beautiful you know biodiversity of that of that garden that fragrance is what makes us special right is mm. that sort of gift you talk about so mm. 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 Uh, love that. that yeah so that that word kin yeah would you would you define it for 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 us or sort of like tell us what you mean by that yeah, Ken. I mean, it's. I, I, I know Donna Haraway has done a lot more work with this in her ecofeminist uh, writings, and I'm not so academic when it comes to how I think about Ken. I, I, I've done some work with various uh, indigenous uh, groups, and in the work that I do, um, some of the Yupik people in um, Alaska and the Karuk in in um, California, and then uh, closer to home here, the Abenaki and, and um, yes, various other Northeastern tribes. And, and one of the things that, you know, that, that, that happens across all of those interactions is they'll hear phrases like all our, all our relations, all our relations. And that phrase uh, is used really to, to reference this bigger sense of kin, of kinship, of, 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 of 
people that we are related to in some sense, um, you know, not in the nuclear family sense, but in this larger sense of e either direct descendant, common ancestor, or um, in our humanity, or in uh, all being part of the same living systems, right? And having different roles to play in those living systems. So there's something about kin and kinship. I know D Donna Haraway says she, she, she thinks about how kin invokes the word kind. You know, you wanna be kind to your kin. Not always, obviously, close family can be difficult, but, <laughs> but, um, but this idea that if, if as Valerie Cower says, if, if I believe you're a part of me that I don't know yet, then maybe I wanna bring some curiosity, some kindness, some softness, rather than just roar on by, uh, uh, maybe even just run you over, um, uh, but, but slow down and, and get to know. And um, isn't that kind of part of the wonder of living anyway? It's just like putting all the pieces together of this bigger thing that we're all a part of. And I feel, I feel that more strongly the older that I get. Um, so that's how I'm thinking about it. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's beautiful. And that's, that's so lovely. And so as you were talking, I think for me, two things popped up is I, if I'm thinking about who, where I was as an individual 18 months ago, on the hamster wheel going 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 nowhere um and feeling like an individual so feeling you know I, one of my friends said to me isn't it interesting Fabian that we like 95 percent uh, empty space and five percent Fabian this this thing but we tend to focus so much more on the five percent <laughs> Curtis Fabian or whoever we are right as physical bodies and so it almost requires you, you've alluded to that that slowing right down right to become much more aware of what's coming up and emerging from that the observing um and not shoving it away and pretending it's not there. So I think for me, the, the, the way things have changed is I, I use, you talked a lot about like intellectual and feeding the head. That's what I feel I was doing a lot. I love intellectualizing and all of these things. And there was this, this little, tiny little voice, very quiet, that I kept going, not now, not now. Or when things popped up, I would just sort of like go, you know, sort of quiet it's just shove out of the way because you're on the hamster well you haven't got time so to for me to to to, to explore the regenerative or you know what the, the next step of like changing um things if that's what we're going to use i worry that in if we take it from that position of being on the hamster wheel and looking for the silver bullet then it's going to be the next panache or like silver bullet where it's going to become like mindfulness we're going to sort it out and so for you how important is it and relevant is all of that and what sort of what message would you have in terms of like the next steps rather than brushing and going yes regenerative leadership is the answer and <laughs> yeah. it's going to save us all um yeah <laughs> oh wow i think that yeah that um catches me at a sort of important moment where I am really right right now. Um, 
Yeah, I, 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 I've been writing a little bit about this and thinking about it and, and more than that, actually practicing something different, right? So, uh, you know, as a son of academics and somebody who loves ideas and connecting ideas and synthesizing ideas, I, I can be up there in my head. And yet I, I know I have this, the rest of my body, right? That's below the neck. And um, actually that brings me lots of joy. I'm actually a very active physical person. Uh, I'm at my best when I bring all of that together, which I think is true for most of us, right? That when we remember we are not just heads, we are hearts, we are guts, we are all of these things. And, you know, I've been, I've, I've been observing in some of the regenerative um, conversations, not, not everywhere, but in some where it, it remains fairly heady, you know, new frameworks, new, very complicated things that really only lend themselves to, you know, I don't know, this kind of grinding analytical thought, which is not to say that analysis and intellect is, is bad. I don't want to sort of do what we often do is, you know, throw something out, out and bring it back in, but it's more sort of transcend and include. And um, both due to some of my own physical challenges, I had something come up um, during the pandemic um, where I received treatment for uh, uh, a benign tumor in my inner ear, um, which was radiated. And um, I had a very strong reaction to treatments, which has actually demanded that I get reacquainted with my body, um, that I really get to know it in an intimate way and that I embrace it in a different kind of way. And that I've been uh, working with uh, different kinds of healing modalities, um, uh, acupressure, a very subtle kind of chiropractic work, a craniosacral work, um, you know, modalities that I was open to, but not using because I didn't really feel like I needed to. But the more that I do them, the more um, this idea of sort of integrative body work makes sense to me as being what, um, uh, what regenerative work is about. It's about sort of reclaiming parts of the body and helping to slowly reintegrate them because I've learned that, you know, a rush to integrate can cause more damage. So whether we're talking about that with people who haven't been, you know, together or have been clashing, you can't just rush them into integration. Uh, that can yield more trauma, more conflict. Same as it turns out with the organs of our bodies, uh, of different regions of our bodies that may have been um, given less attention or dissociated, um, uh, you know, we can close our hearts, right? I mean, I remember these, all these biblical phrases of like, so-and-so hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Like that is a metaphor and it's a reality that we can actually harden parts of ourselves to, to give us less access, often as a protective manner, but we then don't just simply say, okay, now it's open <laughs> because <Sure. laughs> that, that can be overwhelming. And so there's mm -hmm. this slow, careful reintroduction of different regions of our body and beings, whether it's within these single bodies or between bodies, between groups within ecosystems. And, and to me, that's not just such a heady affair, because if you don't know what trauma feels like in the body, it's hard to do that work. If you don't know what it means to, you know, sort of try and reclaim something that has been rejected, it's it's hard to do that work with, with others. Um, and so, um, 
uh, I don't know. I, I just, I feel like <clears throat> the more I learn about the body and the enteric nervous system, the sec second brain within our bodies, right? It's not just this brain, it's this brain that knows as much and at a more prim primordial level. <clears throat> and what the heart truly is, not just as something that pumps pumps our blood, but that gives us access to emotion and resonance between humans and between humans and the rest of the world. It's all here for a reason. And so to be in right relation means to be in right relation within, between, and around us. And um, that I feel like is the work. I mean, that's the work I want to be doing, you know, the rest of my time on this planet, clearly. I love it. It's so, so, so beautiful. And it's this, it's sort of like in my terminology, it's like, how do we determine the, the conditions for flourishing at every level? So it's the, you know, as an individual, I'm a, my own ecosystem, like you describe, right? So I've got trillions of cells who's sort of trying to work together. And most of them I'm not in charge of, I think, in my head. But actually, the only organ I can control is my breathing. The yeah. rest happens without <laughs> the, the, the me intellectual actually doing anything, right? Um, and so, and I love how you describe the heart, because I think for me, my visual of the heart is this, you know, it, it, it pumps the, 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 it helps to sort of like get the blood through all the organs and stuff, right? It's the real connector, like the networker. The, so for me, the, the, the heart is like really the filter and the connector between the head and, and, the, and the guts, the more visceral, the physical, right? Mm -hmm. The intellectual, the wisdom and the, and the physical. Um, and, it, and I love what you describe about your own process with your own health challenges, because for me, it was very much that. It's uh, my favorite saying in the world is everything is a rumor until it's in the muscles, but that's what they say in Papua New Guinea. Mm. And so it's this, okay, well, how do I take all this intellectual understanding, all these frameworks and all those, you know, the things that all these amazing disruptors are sharing or innovators in education are sharing with me? but then let it filter through the, the heart and then go into the legs and, and you know, go into a practical, how does it actually show up physically in this world? Because right, we, we online, but we also have a physical life. Um, so that's how for me is that the regenerative work is like, it's for myself as an individual, you know, but it's also about like the, then the community and then the organizations and then society. Mm -hmm. So is that how you also view it and understand it or do you see it differently? I mean, I feel like, um, yeah, I guess I'm still trying to sort it out. I mean, at, at this stage, I know that I, what I feel uh, or sort of intuit is that until I, and I'll be doing this this work for the rest of my life, however long that is. But I feel like until I have a better sense of my own individual regenerative capacity, that that's going to be important for me to then bring it to 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 others, and not just sort of a heady intellectual way. Um, and um, and because I mean, it, because it is challenging. It is challenging for me to, <laughs> you know, to to 
reclaim something that it feels like I want to reject in a painful part of my body, right? And yet this is a part of me. And 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 so how do I bring sort of loving care and attention to it and and give it its due, the patience to sort of bring it back in. I feel like that's the patience we do that's required of us all to do this work in, in different ways beyond ourselves, in groups, in community, in 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 ecosystems. And so um I don't know. There's a certain amount of starting with self, but there's also this this danger that it's it's not just about me because I'm not just regenerated by this thing inside my body. It is in relation. It is in, uh, to those things that are and those people that are beyond me. Um, but there, but there is something I think very central about the the body. This John Donahue quote keeps going through my head, which is, um, "Our bodies know that we belong." It's our minds that make us so homeless. And uh, and and I want to make sure that I'm fully inhabiting this body. Be grounded and settled as a way of then, you know, um, engaging i guess in different ways it's a beautiful group i love that really love that and again I, that's how i feel i used to be so like yeah that's great next thing yeah that's great next thing yeah that's great next thing <laughs> and i just felt like like a bit like a globe you know like those snow globe that you keep shaking shaking up yes yeah and it's just like slowly I'm feeling like, okay, let's just be still a bit more um, and not want to rush. So, you know, this whole, the conversations are definitely the words that are coming up. It's part of the conversation are very much the regenerative. And, you know, the my, my default mode would be let's, let's explore and intellectualize and understand it. But it's sort of, you know, that's that's why having conversations with you is like trying, really trying, sort of wanting to go beyond the intellectual to the, to the, and to sort of, yeah, try try and then see how it, it it's experienced on a, you know, at a deeper level. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know, I, I, I worry that it is going to be used as the, as the next best silver bullets um well i think it yeah i think it already is in 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 certain circles we sort of have you we've moved on to the next um it's like the new sustainability um which i know you know some of the early users of that of that particular word like carol sanford and Bill Reed and others, at least in the US context, always meant it to be, you know, it's not just a new word, it really signifies something very different. And I have great respect for, for their work and their integrity. And I would say, this, this, just, this also just came to mind that there's a, I was just reading, I was listening to a, uh, listening to a book on my drive out to New York State today uh, it's written by um, Stanley Rosenberg, who's a 
think he's in his 70s. He's a body worker who's been doing work for 40 years. And he, his book is specifically on doing integrative body work using polyvagal theory. So this idea that the vagus nerve has, you know, it's, it's much more complex. We're learning everything is much more complex than we thought it was. Um, it's a wonderful book so far I've gotten through and it's helped me to understand a lot about what I, my own body and I think what's going on in terms of its regeneration, which of course, <laughs> it feels like humans can get often, it seems like in some cases, the role of humans in regeneration is to get out of the way <laughs> messing it up. Um, um, but I think we can also be stewards clearly but um, but what was it he was saying? Oh, he was just saying he's he's American, but he's moved to Denmark and he's been practicing in Denmark for decades. And he said the real blessing about being in Denmark is he says he feels like in the United States, there's a new fad. This is the new body work. This is the new thing. This is the new thing. This is the new thing. By being in Denmark, he hasn't felt that pressure. And he's been able to really deepen into a few modalities over a long period of time so that he understands that there's a common set of principles across all of them. They're different techniques, they're used for different things, but you just really have to steep and deepen into it and, and to really get to know the practices and the bodies he's working on. And to me, there was something just so yes about that, about um, that desire to slow and go deep and not just go for the next shiny object. Um, which this attention economy that we live in is so just so wants to pull us away. This book, that book, this idea, that idea, as opposed to just the practice of really getting into it, like getting to know my own backyard for what it is and the plants that are there and how they are season to season and who's migrating through getting to my own children through their seasons and not always thinking about what's the next activity that they can be plugged into. Sticking with a practice over time and watching how my body changes as opposed to that's not working, let me pull something else in. I know there's, I, th I think this is where discipline comes in and, and is another word. Um, that, that discipline and discernment I feel like are two critical words, but it's hard to discern if you haven't really kind of sunken into something. So, wow. I love it. That's just that. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yes. And, uh, and discipline is not a word that will, will, uh, will resonate with a lot of people because it sort of requires what you just described, right? To just stay long enough than like two minutes on something and requires also what you were saying is the, the seeing what comes up and then feeling the, that emotion or, you know, being with that and, you know, embracing like the, the recognizing that there's a part of me that, you know, you were describing it beautifully. I feel like the as human beings, we are we can be amazing um, social mammals who really care deeply about others. But there's also a very you know, particularly when we're fearful, there's a part of us that can be really, really self-centered and individualistic, right? It's almost a and so 
it's not about denying that there's that part of me, right? It's that it reminds me of the story of the, the white wolf and the black wolf, right? Which one do you feed? Um, right. Is that it's the it's first recognizing that there are two wolves and um, and I think that also needs to be part of those conversations. I mean, I don't know whether that, that you agree with that. I do. Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's um, embracing the the shadow, understanding that there, you know, that we are complex, and I, I don't know these words, good and bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes they serve us, and sometimes they don't. Um, yeah, we're we're just this mishmash. We're animals. Mm -hmm. we, we are competitive. We are <laughs> we are have these nervous systems that are meant to uh, support our own uh you know lives and living and so we are called to defend it's just the problem is that sometimes that gets confused with what is actually going on in the moment and so if mm -hmm. we don't bring that discernment we're acting as if there's a saber-toothed tiger around the corner when it's it's not that or the the threat is gone and and we're conflating threats i, I mean we're these kind of marvelous constructions of all of these impulses and and systems and and i think it is important to just own it all um because I, I I know what it's like to try and cast out my shadow. It doesn't work so well, and it can just actually make things much worse. So embracing it all, embracing the imperfection as part of perfection, and 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 um, I don't know, just 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 just. I I, I think it's I think it was Nora Bateson who once defined. Um, uh, complexity. I, I, I love. She described. She. I, I. I find different definitions of love that I love. Love playing with. But one of hers that I remember her sharing with me was, um, "Love is um, embracing the complexity of ourselves and one another. It's just to hold the whole thing and just accept it. Is that's that's the deal. That's the package, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah." Hold the complexity, hold what is challenging, recognize when certain things are just not in service or of service. I mean, that's kind of the call to consciousness um, and not just acting habitually. And presumably is what maybe we were, were evolving to be able to do. I hope so. Yes. <laughs> um, I could talk to you for hours, really seriously. I just love, love talking to you. Um, but I'm conscious of, of your time. So um, I, I normally ask my guests if, you know, of Nate, like what, what's one book, if people have really resonated with what we've been talking about uh, and they want to explore some of the topics that we've, we've discussed. Uh, I mean, you alluded to the book that you've just read, so I wonder whether that would be this one, or is there a, a, a book that you would really highly recommend anybody to go and explore, read, or listen to? Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, I, I still keep, I mean, the number of times that I've referenced Sand Talk, I feel like Tyson Yunkaporta's Sand Talk is, is definitely worth it from a couple of years ago about how indigenous knowledge and thinking can really 
I think it's save us. I mean, I'm sure that's a little bit hyperbole for for marketing purposes, but it can it, you know it can serve us <laughs> at least. Um, and then, um, yeah, I would say that the Stanley Rosenberg uh, book on polyvagal theory and um, I'll have to get the whole the whole title. You can send me you can if you don't mind sending me the, the details when I post when I publish our conversation. I can just add the links. That'll be really cool. Yeah, that's 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 a that's a really wonderful one. And 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 another that I just come back to again and again, having read it, you know, a number of years ago, is. Um, uh, braiding sweetgrass, uh, which um, Robin Wall Kimmerer wrote, uh, who's a, a botanist, and uh, I think she's Potawatomi uh, indigenous um, member, the Potawatomi. Um, just yeah, bringing this kind of integral view of life and care into play. Thank you. And so, and to finish. If there was one thing you would want our listeners to take away from this conversation, what would it be? I just think that life is, you know, life when lived at its best truly is a, 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 a journey of learning throughout and that uh, the invitation is to not forget about our heads, but to really, you know, reclaim the rest of uh, our bodies that are um, sources of knowledge and wisdom and um, emotion, these things that sometimes we want to um, push away for good reason, maybe to be protective, um, but they're, they're, they're marvelous, right? They're these marvelous things that we have. So Let's get to know them. Amazing. And what a beautiful invitation. Thank you so much, Curtis. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Lovely. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please don't hesitate to get in touch with me with any comments or questions you may have. You can find me on Twitter at Flourishing HE or on LinkedIn at Fabian Fells. Please also like this podcast as it's helping me promote it and don't hesitate to share it widely with your friends and family. Thank you so much for listening and for your support.